It's 8 a.m. It's 8 a.m. Morning. What's up? This is Joe. This is Jordan. It's the 8 a.m. shift. What's up, dude? Well, we're coming off an interesting weekend. That's right. <laughs> uh, it was the Dominican Day Parade in New York City. Oh. <laughs> um, amongst other things that happened this weekend, but one of the interesting highlights was that um, this past Friday was the official release date of Spike Lee's Black Klansman. That's right. Um, which he selectively decided to release on the one-year anniversary of the Charlottesville riot. Right. And there was a lot in it, a lot that was put into this movie that clearly has a strong correlation with some of the stuff we see socio-politically right. now. And I think, you know, we want to take a, a, a good chunk of our listeners' time to discuss <laughs> it, you know. Yeah, no, it's, uh, well, I think one, we should say at a gate here, we're probably going to get into some spoilers with the film because I feel like to talk about it, we kind of have to speak about especially speak about like the end of the film well we'll, we'll do our best to talk around it but right. be clear uh this guy wrote a book the guy ron stallworth wrote right. a book about his experience which is the source material for this movie right and also he's done numerous interviews where he talked about the incidences that were you know captured in the actual movie as well right the one takeaway is that actually a lot of the stuff in the film is very similar to what happens in his actual book. Right, right. You know, so I thought that was interesting. I'm, I'm, int- I'm really intrigued that they were able to stick so closely to uh, the source material. I saw an article. Uh, I, I didn't have a chance to read it, but the headline was, uh, you know, what was real and what was fiction in the film. Right, so I'm right. actually interested to take a look at that and just see. Um, you know, what they, uh, or at least what is perceived to be fiction in the film. Right, right, right. Um, but first, uh, let's, let's, uh, what, what did you think of the movie? I thought all the actors and actresses did a solid job of mixing uh, drama with dark comedy. Right. Um, I wouldn't call this movie, like, necessarily entirely a laugh-out-loud comedy, although right. I sense from the audience, um, you know, whom I watched this movie with, that, you know, some of those moments that are, like, very dead... There's like a dead humor to a lot of moments in right, it. Right, right. And you're not really supposed to laugh at it, but you're laughing at it because, like, this really happened. Because it's so absurd. It's, I mean, yeah. And, and I think, like, it behooves people to think that the KKK would take an ad out in a local newspaper <laughs> right. for recruitment. But if you read or, or read interviews with Ron Stallworth, right. he says, like, that's kind of more or less what happened. Like, right, they were right, just right. trying to start a chapter in Colorado Springs, and they would take out these ads in the local area papers so right. he just opened up a newspaper and saw an ad and was just like all right let me give this a call <laughs> yeah and he did exactly what he did in the movie which is right. like he masqueraded as a white man who hated like minorities <laughs> and immigrants right you know and you know other other such uh, quote-unquote nuisances to uh the uh, white race right um <laughs> uh, so I guess just if I if, if, just to talk about it as a film first, uh, I I really enjoyed it, man. It, I have been so I grew up loving Spike Lee, right? And I think I've mentioned this on the podcast right, right. before. Like be, being a New York film, you know, New Yorker myself, New York filmmaker, you know, or at least thriving filmmaker. <laughs> uh, I grew up idolizing like Martin Scorsese, Spike Lee. Like these were the guys who like. I um you're like every NYU kid. Right. <laughs> every Ever. Brooklyn kid. Every, Jordan. every. <laughs> uh so you know when he sort of had his downfall which I think has been the last say this is going to sound a little messed up but like the last maybe 15 years of his career I don't think have been that great. I will, I, I will say this. I will defend Chirac, though. Well, but this Chirac is, is a really underrated film. But listen, this, so this is this is my point. Is I'm not saying everything's been a dud within those 15, say, 20 years. Something like a Chirac is like sort of a bright spot there. But I feel like Black Klansman is is almost that comeback film for him. You know right, what I'm saying? Because right. like Chirac was good, and but. It, you know, it just it's not gonna get. It didn't get anywhere 
as much notoriety exactly, notoriety exactly. as Black Klansman exactly. is going to get. And I just think the films operate on very different levels, and I think Black Klansman is a is just a better put together film. Um, yeah, my thing with Chirac is that it's 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 uh, quirky, right? Because they use a very they use poetry through it. Right. And I think I said on a previous podcast, uh, it made Nick Cannon look actually kind of good as an actor. <laughs> I'm never going to defend Nick Cannon. I can't no, do this it. Guy, he, was, he was not wilding out. <laughs> but uh, so basically, I would say I think sort of the the rough part of his career started with Miracle at St. Anne. So let's say it's about a 10 year span, right? Yeah. He had had some not so great films before then, but he had done like Inside Man maybe yeah. a few years before, yep. which was really good. Yep. Um, so I could see Black Klansman almost like another inside man for him, right? Like this, like, hey, he spikes back, you know? Right, right. Um, but, yeah, no, I thought, just from a story standpoint, like, I thought the script moved really well. I thought it never really, like, meanders and, like, you know, takes too much time in places it doesn't need to be. Um, I thought the performances were fantastic. Uh, yeah. Denzel Washington's son, John Washington. Yep, I thought it was great. He was yeah, he was great. I thought uh, <laughs> Topher Grace's David Duke was a little scary, to be honest. Yo, the the side by side picture of the real David Duke and Topher Grace insane is one of the most <laughs> chilling things I've ever seen. We, in my we life. may have to put that up on the Instagram. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think I was I was so shocked by it. I yeah. I definitely like messaged you about it, yeah. and <laughs> my response was. <laughs> You think Red would be happy? <laughs> <laughs> if you know that '70s show, you, you'd get the, <laughs> the reference. Uh, but Adam Driver was great. But uh, also on that note, what? you know who I thought was really low key a, a scene stealer? Who? Corey Hawkins as uh, Kwame Torre. Oh yeah, Stokely amazing, Michael. amazing. He I, one basically one scene. That uh, one scene, I know. It was just like man, like Corey, incredible. Yo, Corey Hawkins, like, 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 I. And he, basically, most of the actors in the NWA biopic right. are actually pretty good in like some of the stuff that's yeah, yeah, outside yeah. of that. You know, I think uh, you're always gonna remember him as like Dr. Dre and <laughs> right, right. but he was awesome in The Walking Dead. I think he, I don't think he got enough um, credit for his role in the 24 reboot. Right, um, and he was fantastic as 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 Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Torre in in uh, Black Klansman, <laughs> and I think. I mean, just the just like the the moment, and if you know anything about uh, Ron Stallworth and his and uh, in, in the interviews that he's been doing, he, that actually happened. He really did see yeah, yeah. Uh, Kwame Torre speak, and he says like that was his one brush with history, right? You know that like kind of like resonated with him, right? You know? I, uh, so I saw the film with a Q and A with the cast. Spike wasn't there, but uh, uh, he came in, uh, Corey Hawkins, mm-hmm. and. The whole cast just singing his praises, dude. They were like, right. he came in for basically like a day or two and just like blew it up. And it, and it's true, you see it in that performance, right? As Stokely uh, Carmichael um, or Kwame Torre, yeah. Uh, yeah, you just feel like the passion yeah. coming off the, the the like. Yeah, I was gonna say celluloid, but who are we kidding? The digital transfer or whatever. Um, yeah, so no, like the performances are all there, right? Like Spike just was able to like drag these performances out of these these actors, and it, it's like something I ha- feel like I haven't necessarily seen in a Spike film in a long time. Maybe right. even since Twenty uh, Fifth Hour, because I think Twenty Fifth Hour is like one of his best like acted films, and right. uh, you know this is maybe up there. Um, but just to go back to that, you you know you you said sort of calling it a dark comedy, I think it was a genius move to ha- to infuse the film with these like moments of levity because he knows how heavy the subject matter is. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, even if you take away the elements of um, the KKK out of it, it's still a story about a, a man who's um, adapting to being a black cop. Right. And, you know, the opening scene, he gets to the precinct. Right. And it's like my, minorities encouraged to apply, right? And people laugh at it because it's like very like dead. Right. It's like the humor is very. It's very like office, like the office style humor, like very dead, very deadpan. Right. But 
real talk, like that's exactly how the recruitment happens sometimes. <laughs> Especially if you go back to the era of like the seventies and eighties when like the, a lot of these precincts, a lot of these departments had very low minority um recruits. Right. You know. Um and, you know, side note, they definitely did a great job in incorporating Isaiah Whitlock Jr. into it. Yeah. Um and giving him the classic shit. <laughs> when he did it and he like cuts him off, I was like, that's genius, yeah. man. Um, for all the Wire fans, you should totally watch <laughs> Black Klansman. And by the way, if, you, if you're if you a Wire fan and you haven't watched Chirac, he totally does it in Chirac as well. <laughs> so please, if you if you support the Wire and Isaiah Whitlock, yeah. support Spike Lee too. He does it in a, there's a film called Cedar Rapids that he's in that is a great movie uh, Puerto Rican director and I, I'm, I'm blanking on his name now but he's a really really good filmmaker and I believe he plays this like very straight laced like you know like maybe an accountant or something And but he does it at some point and I was like yes when he's just like she but um but one of the things that I was gonna just going back to the sort of the comedy that's like sort of infused throughout the film, uh, it's it's done in a very clever way because it's like it's showing you these really like awful, horrible, heinous things, but it also knows that they they can't just beat you over the head with it. So the op- just think about the opening of the film with Alec Baldwin, right? Right. When you have this guy like speaking about, you know the black race and how they need to be, you know, you know, put in their place and taken out of right, this country. Right. And it, but it's done in this way that where he's like filming this, this, uh, almost like a P a, you know, a racist PSA and he keeps having to stop and he keeps messing up. So it's like, you're getting this message, right? Like, look at this like awful thing that these people were saying and doing at the time, but it's also like, Look how idiotic it is, you yeah. know, and 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 he just he just knew how to balance that really well. And you want to know what? Not, I'm not taking any credit away from Spike because because he, he's been doing this a lot in his right, career. Right, right, right. The fact that Jordan Peele is a producer on the film, I think, really also, you know, played a part in like having that that balance between yeah. the dark and the light. Let's yeah. say, you know yeah. what I'm no, saying. I, I I agree with you. Yeah. I definitely agree with you on that. Um, also, a very interesting side note. One takeaway that I got away from the movie was that this is the same summer that Sorry to Bother You co- had come out. Right. And both of these movies deal with black men having to masquerade as like white men on the right. telephone. Right. And, you know, I, I took a moment to a very brief moment. And I guess I'm like thinking out loud right now, trying to make sense of it. And it really made me wonder if this is almost like it's like a symbolic thing. You know, right. like the double consciousness aspect that that they mention somewhat in in Black Klansman, right? You know, which is uh, harkens back to the writings of W. E. B. Du Bois. It it really made me wonder if, like, you know, first of all, this is a huge step I think for Black filmmaking, right? Um, just the fact that you're able to kind of like find these examples and just like run with them. But I just found it really interesting that you can you could take a concept like that and right. like take it go in like two different directions with it. Yeah. You know, it's one historical, right, and the other one uh, dystopian. If you will. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Although both of them are kind of dystopian in their <laughs> yeah, own right. In their own right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so that's that's an interesting uh, takeaway that I got out of uh, this film as well. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I I wouldn't call it necessarily a perfect film because I think. There are some of those moments where, like, Spike just kind of couldn't contain himself. And, uh, for instance, there's a scene when uh, I think it's Adam Driver's character, maybe. No, no, maybe it. No, sorry, it's uh, John Washington and maybe his captain are talking, and they're like, I forget who they're talking about, but it's it's basically a reference to to Donald Trump. Yeah, they're exactly. like they're like almost winking at the camera, and they're yeah. like, you know, yeah, yeah. And, we, we said something about like we got to make this make make America as great as as it possibly can right, be or right, something right. like that, and you're like message (laughs) and it's like stuff like that i felt like you don't need right because the film is already serving its purpose right you're you're getting your message across with the story that you're telling you don't really need to like hammer that home because one it just feels out of place within the rest of the film within the context of the film um so there were just like one or two moments like that where it's kind of like, come on, Spike, like just rain it in, rain it in, man. Like you don't need to, ne- you don't need to go there, right? Right. Um, 
I think for me, one issue I did take with the movie was that the runtime is actually pretty long for. Yeah, it didn't feel that long to me though. I think oh, it, really? I think it, it uh, yeah, I think it's a little over two hours, but it didn't. It didn't really feel that long to me, but you know, I you know. Yeah, I wasn't necessarily mad at it in the sense that like they they did a good job of capturing snapshots of everyone. Mm. Um, but like I said, it just like as I like I was at a certain point, like okay, what's like when is this like when is like the I guess like the the massive wrap up gonna happen? Right, right. Uh, because they don't really give a very strong indication of um what necessarily needs to happen. They just know there's a a, a terrorist threat at some point. <laughs> right. And if I'm ruining anything for you. Uh, just let just let everyone know that it's usually what happens when you deal with uh, KKK skinheads or other uh, white separatist nationalists. There's usually <laughs> something that involves some type of some like domestic terrorist plot. Right. <laughs> There's no spoilers there. Anyone just read Wikipedia. Just, just give it a read. Just give it a read. <laughs> um, you, one of the other things that just bothered me a little bit was, and it's not the whole time but Ashley Atkinson she plays the wife of that like KKK guy right at points I, I and this uh, I don't think through any fault of her own I, she, she had to be directed to like sort of like she, she, she's really over the top in some scenes like that scene when they're watching Birth of the Nation yeah and just certain other points throughout the film where she's like really really over the top and very like a little too dramatic and i feel like that had to be spike directing her to like to just be really big in certain moments and sometimes it, it would take me out because it was like a little too yeah they maybe a little too comedic a little a little you know yeah they definitely go um they definitely drive in the point that the kkk is very much about not it's very much not about any type of gender equality. <laughs> right, right, you right. You know, um, and, and it's like I get it, but like they could have done it without her being so big and so you know it, everything was just like that's right. I'm gonna be a part of this too. Like she's like screaming at the yeah, top yeah. of her lungs sometimes about how she's gonna like make a difference and just when they're, she's they're watching Birth of a Nation and yeah. she's like, oh my god. And she, she, she was so big in those scenes that I was just like, at points it comes off as a, it's too, like trying to be funny. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. Rather than just being funny, naturally being funny within the scene, it seemed like it was trying too hard to be funny. And I, I understand he's trying to make a point, but again, right. sometimes you don't need to, to beat people over the head as much, man. Yeah. Like people are smart, they'll get it. Yeah. So just little things like that, like I, I remember you also mentioned that you took some issue with uh was it the casting of Nikki Totoro <laughs> yeah. as, as like the Nordak uh terrorist dude. Yeah. So I love Nikki Totoro, man. <laughs> he's he's, uh, he's your uh, brother of John Totoro. <laughs> brother of John Totoro. Uh if you ever seen Joe in real life, he's in some ways almost like the spitting younger image of Nikki Totoro. Dude, to be honest, a lot of people have like Call me, oh, call, no, no, call me John Tatura. Like, people who are like, are you, you know, you kind of look like John Tatura. And I'm like, I don't think so, but okay. So no one's come up to him and been like, oh, yo, you're the, the training sergeant in our Blue Bloods. <laughs> Joe can't get past Tiger Heights um, Most with, people, without at least one Blue Bloods reference. <laughs> Most people don't know who Nikki Tatura is, so I usually get John Tatura. But uh, Nikki Tatura has been in a lot of Spike films. He's yeah. like a Spike regular. And, uh, that was just another moment where I was like, it was just Spike, like, you know what, Nikki, I'm going to give you this role, I'm throwing you in there, and it kind of doesn't work, because if you know Nikki Tuturo, he's got this, like, really heavy, like, Brooklyn or New York accent. Yeah, he's a real Brooklyn Italian. Right, like. and and he's playing, like, this white supremacist in Colorado Springs, and it just doesn't really register, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Although, unless you were come to find out that the the um, white supremacist that inspired the character was like a Brooklyn Italian guy with a really, really harsh New York accent. Then I'd be like, oh, all right. Yeah, you know, like if that was the case, uh, true, but like that's one of those things where I feel like you take the liberty, you take those movie making liberties and maybe you don't put the Brooklyn guy in the role because it just kind of takes it out of the film. Yeah. You know, it takes you out of the film a little bit. Yeah. So even if, let's say, you know, there's, uh, there's like that old saying that, you know, like some, you know, whether it's real or not, 
on film sometimes it just doesn't read it just it just doesn't read right right Right. so like you can have a story about a guy who saved himself on a mountain and he carried three dogs on his back and like if it really happened that's amazing but if you show that in film people are going to be like i don't believe that shit you know what i'm saying so maybe there was a brooklyn italian guy (laughs) you know in the kkk in colorado springs in the uh you know when is it early 1970s 1970s, but you know i know what it doesn't ring true in the film man so at that point maybe I don't cast Nikki Totoro but again who am I to tell Spike Lee I think the thing that stood out to me was that if you ever seen Nikki Totoro he he's like definitely like a a bronze skinned like Sicilian, right, right, right. And you're looking at him cast against all these like. <laughs> I was like, like they would hate him. <laughs> <laughs> and like, there's definitely a part at um when they like question like uh, incoming KKK members like right. about their bloodline or whatnot. You right. know what I mean, and the thing is like, it's also stupid too because even there's a lot of definitely a lot of white ethnicities that aren't like pure Aryan or whatnot. Right. Italians absolutely not. <laughs> exactly. If any Italians are offended right now. I'm going to tell you, go look at a Wikipedia page. (laughs) Maybe on the north side, it's possible, but you're probably a mix of like Arab and, you know, Middle Eastern. Yeah, somewhere in there. (laughs) They they were conquered for a very long time. Especially if you're Sicilian. Exactly. Uh, (laughs) To be honest, you know who he should have cast in the role is John Turturro. Because John Turturro won... I think his brother looks a little, maybe a little, not that John Turturro doesn't look Italian because he definitely looks Italian, but if you see John Turturro in Old Brother Where Art That, one of my favorite films, he plays South really well, right? right. Like he plays that Southern, like that draw, like he knows right, how to right. do it. And I mean, not that, you know, he necessarily needed it for playing a guy in Colorado Springs, per se, but like, um, he, I think, would have been better for that role. I, he's also like, Nikki, no, no disrespect, but. John Turturro's a better actor. We'll see you on Blue Blood. There you go. Uh, But, uh, and by the way, I butchered that saying earlier, but I was paraphrasing it, but you get the gist. It's, you know, if it doesn't ring true, even if it is true, it may not ring true on on film, man. Right. So for that, I I probably would have uh, taken Nick Turturro out, but you know what? In the end, it's it's not like a deal breaker for the film. I still really, really enjoyed it. And I do think it's a film people need to see because I think, you know, it has a lot to say about, you know, not only what was happening then, but like what's happening right now. Right, right. Um, one thing that I sort of appreciate too is that the movie doesn't, it doesn't go too far into like anti-cop rhetoric. Right. Um, some would argue that like, yes, it does. But I mean, they contextualize the whole um, debate. And I think what was really smart was that, um, and like I said earlier in the podcast, right. Just the fact that he's a black man in law enforcement and the job that he has to do and what he's experiencing and what he's learning. Right. Mind you, uh, there's a part where you learn that a lot of these white supremacists are in the armed forces, right. um, in addition to Nikki Turturro's character. And if you read the Wikipedia entry on Ron Stallworth, you learn that these guys are part of like the North American like defense uh you, I forgot the actually It's like NORDAC. It's like, right, right. like basically they're charged with our... Um, our the entire defense defense system of the of the United States, right? right? And that these guys had infiltrated even that section of American government. And there's a scene where an FBI agent kind of alludes to that, right. right? So the complexities of being a black male in law enforcement um, is definitely highlighted greatly in this movie, right? Um, which actually brings me to another point too that there is a book that came out recently called The Black and the Blue, mm. um, which is details a black man's experience as an officer of the law, but right. also, you know, being a black man as well, uh, which based on the interview I heard, you should totally read that book. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, I think we did a good job of kind of highlighting that. And even, uh, you know, his relationship with the black community in Colorado Springs um, is called, is call into question a little bit because of that right. you know and he's un, he's doing double work as an undercover which certainly puts him at risk like twice as much as like his white ca- counterparts in some right. ways um but yeah i i i thought it was a you know it was definitely relevant um and i guess i found myself listening to something that we did about a year ago around this time which was a recap of our thoughts about what happened in charlottesville right and I guess this would be a good time to revisit that. We're going to we do a little flashback? We're going to do a little flashback because we didn't get a chance to put this episode out. But we'll play a clip from what we recorded 
from roughly a year ago. <laughs> right. We apologize if this sounds rough. It's from the early days of the ADM shift. <laughs> Here you go. Here you go. Well, where do I begin? So most of the weekend... How did you uh, receive Social the media. Yeah, social media. I think that was the most shocking part of it was how like this is normal right the last time i checked social media that much was probably november 8th right right so i think finding out about these things via social media is like fairly normal now but the more that kept coming out of it and um i think now with the integration of things like twitter moments or the usage of it mm. and it being crowdsourced so frequently um I think that was like kind of made, made it more shocking because like you know I wasn't really looking at Periscope for like live updates for the election per se right. maybe some people were I just personally wasn't right but to see something of this magnitude and like the the fact that it started on really on Friday night right yeah and to see With it carry over yeah, to, see, to see it carry over well into Sunday morning I think that was really really you know alarming So, I mean, all that I can say about it, as far as it being an American tragedy in a lot of ways, I think it's already been said by people much, much more intellectual than myself, much more intellectual than myself. Right. You know, so I think that's, I think we all know where my sentiments lie. I'm pretty sure you have very similar sentiments. Yep. You know, but there was a lot that I took out of it that I kind of ingested, um, it's kind of connected to some of the things I've t- spoken to you and Chuck about before, right? Um, just the symbolism of a lot of these things, right. what a lot of these things represent. Um, in particular, when I started, like, kind of, like, dissecting each bracket of essentially white nationalism that was on display, you know, mm-hmm. and the variations, the overlaps. You know, like, I, you know, I'm studying marketing analytics, and part of what you do in marketing analytics is you have to, like, put things into data buckets, right? Like, categorize mm-hmm. things, right? And you see these categories, and you see where these categories overlap, and you sort of see where, like, the, you know, I guess, like, where the, the relevancy between each one of them is, and it's really startling. It's really scary. Um, and I think you kind of also see that reflective... You see it reflected in, um, in particularly the flags and branding that they have. You know, as as, silly, as weird as it may sound to some people, branding, but like, you know, if you actually study like the nature of like prison gangs, right? right. Like Aryan Brotherhood, mm-hmm. their their nickname in prison is the brand, right? It's a reference to like their the, their um their uh, tattoos, which are usually spot stickers. Um, it's disturbing. It's really scary. Um, and the fact that we take these things and, um. We basically feed into like these apply these these elements to them to make a statement right you know especially the ones who are using and interpreting it in that context it's really frightening you know um especially when i started seeing like patches or flags that were like half flags right so you'd see like these combo flags of like yeah, half, so. a, half a confederate flag half a kkk flag right, right. half a kkk flag half a three percenter flag um, for those that aren't familiar with the three percenter, right? Three percenter are like the is like the flag of the militiamen. So right. groups like Oath Keepers and like those guys in the the BDUs, with that had the uh, open open and open and carry uh, assault rifles. Right. Those are three percent. Who were there? Who were there? Who were there? Um, there were there were flags that I saw that were like half a three percenter flag, half you know Blue Lives Matter and. It, it was really like startling because if you, in particular with the that particular flag is that you know I've seen people who stand behind the shield that were people of color that also represent that flag right. you know and it kind of gives you some type of like contextually speaking if you think about it it gives you an idea of how much a flag that can be ubiquitous um, amongst law enforcement can get reinterpreted in the hands of whoever it well because that's because most people outside of law enforcement who are saying blue lives matter really saying white lives matter like let's be for real now like i'm not saying all but a lot of people let's say a lot of people outside of certain states who are like blue lives matter really mean white lives matter right so the thing i think was most shocking right like 
we live in a bubble here in New York, right? So yeah, I mean, there's right now it's rumored that there's going to be a Nazi rally here in New York. So that bubble that, might, that might... won't go very well for them. <laughs> but um, it just won't. I mean, like <laughs> you know, what happens in Virginia is going to ha- happen very differently here in yeah, New York. But we live in a bubble, so a lot of people were like shocked when they saw these things, and I wouldn't necessarily say I was shocked, right? Because it's out there. I know it's out there, but the thing that I think is most alarming about what I saw, right? Usually with these things, it's like it's usually a lot of like KKK that kind of stuff, right? Like the rednecks going crazy. But this was a lot more, you know, Aryan nation, you know, Nazi symbolism. A lot more than I think we've seen at a lot of these rallies. Yeah, the, vari- the variations, you know, and, the variations. Right. So when you see those photos of the guys, like you know saluting you know throwing up the nazi salute that brings back those memories of you know hitler and like everybody saluting him and like when you see those images like side by side which people have done now in articles yeah 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 you you it brings back that memory and that is you know that you know took over a country at one point right right wow that was quite the commentary. From, <laughs> a lot of thoughts after. Yeah, a lot of thoughts, that man. One. That was quite the commentary. First thought. <laughs> this should probably not be the first thought, but why do we sound like so much younger and carefree only like a year ago? <laughs> and you know, the world was on fire. Less, less, like, less than a year after Trump took office, the world was on fire. <laughs> it's, it's true, right? <laughs> literally, uh, streets of fire. <laughs> yeah, literally, streets of fire. Um, and with climate change slowly becoming more and more of reality, <laughs> our streets may w- very well one day be on fire. Right. Um, also, a note: I was reviewing what I had said in before we had gone to the clip, right? And I was kept calling it. Like Nordak, it's actually Norad. Yeah, you said Nordak. <laughs> <laughs> Norad. It's like Norad. It's uh, the North American Aerospace Defense Command, uh. which at one point, according to Ron Stallworth, had been infiltrated by clans members. There you go. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's funny, like listening back and like. Not that I don't do this now, but, like, hearing myself sort of bumble over thoughts, but, like, still trying to get it out. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I mean, and, like, I think succeeding for the most part. (laughs) But, uh, you know, I I think we were, you know, we were obviously rightfully in shock after, like, having had a weekend of, like, these, like, heinous events, man. Like, it's, like, seriously, like, an American tragedy. Yeah. And, you know, I wonder about how... Charlottesville, by the way. I feel like we also speak very vaguely in that episode. (laughs) You know, you would know what we were talking about, like, if the episode had come out, like, right after Charlottesville. But, like, now it's just kind of like, hey, you know, uh, that thing that happened. Right. Yeah. I mean, I also wonder, like, how people dealt with this type of stuff years, years before. And I only say that because... They I mean, pretended to be Klansmen, Jordan. <laughs> well, I mean, clearly in like the 1920s and 1930s, it was a normalized thing. I mean, yeah, it was, you know, not frownable. <laughs> yeah, not, exactly, exactly. Um, in addition to that, uh, I also think of, I mean, even like, I mean, I'm thinking more so like in like the 90s or 80s, like what, what, what that type of situation looked like. And sometimes you'll watch like these HBO documentaries, sometimes you'll watch these Vice documentaries. Right. And... You know, I'm 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 just curious to know. Yeah, I mean, like I wonder. I basically wonder, like, how from generation, how each generation from each decade dealt with that type of uh, like environment. And I clearly, right. um, I think the attitudes have probably changed dramatically since the 1920s. You know, <laughs> I think so. You know. I think uh, it's funny because I, although obviously a lot has changed in terms of how we approach it and what's accepted and what's not, um, I think there's also probably a lot of similarities to say like how things are handled today and maybe even in the 90s or 80s. Things have definitely changed, but there's probably more similarities than we know. But the thing is, is now we have social media, yeah, right? so we can the, see yep. with our own eyes like how people are handling handling certain things. So it's not that like people weren't coming out and you know. 
you know, protesting or whatever, but, um, you know, there was just less avenues to see that stuff. Yeah. I think the social media factor was the the biggest game changer in that. And I say that also because, um, even if you go back to like 2008, and if you go back to like, say 2012, maybe, right. right, uh, You know, like a lot of people were still on Blackberries. People obviously still had Twitter. Oh boy. But uh, I think the, uh, you know, the use of video and streaming wasn't the same as it is now. And that was just way different. One, it was just, it took a hell of a lot longer than do, yeah. you know, on your yeah. phone and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, people were like live streaming the Unite the Right rally. Right. And it's like scary, you know, it's scary seeing it. I, I, I mean, like think about how like dystopian that is. Like, right. uh, you know, like I've never, like you, I've never been to, you know, a rally like that or I think most people haven't been to a rally like that and now it's just kind of like if you have a curiosity about it because you're hearing about it you can literally just like click a button or tap your phone and you're getting like you know first first hand account of what's happening instant feed instant feed you know and you know I think that's it's it's crazy because you know you often read these either like look at photos from the civil rights era you hear about people whose families have were experienced it or you know had it took part in like protests or peaceful protests during that period and even you read about stuff that took place prior to that during like the Jim Crow era right. and you know like the word the words that you read obviously um kind of invoke that emotional reaction right but you never really get a sense visually of what what is happening and the fact that you can get that now in right. a way even though even though it's not clearly as you know I'm I'm going to say it, like it's it like what you're experiencing now at like you know at a unite the right rally is probably not is is much more contained than say what was happening during Jim Crow. Right. And I'd say that like pretty objectively because I mean I've read a lot of Jim Crow stuff and it's pretty bad. Right. It's probably the worst parts of American history. Right. You know. So I just thought that was interesting that like you're seeing this like just being able to just drop yourself into it like a right. character in Fortnite or something well, like that. And, and <laughs> Uh, It's funny because I think it's like Obviously, it's scary when, like, yeah, like a like a teenager can put on yeah, Facebook yeah, and yeah. like see, you know, and yep. unite the right rally or whatever. But then it's also like, you know, the good side of it is where, like, so like our, our most recent, you know, unite the right white supremacists, right, whatever you want to call it, that just happened in Washington, D.C. Uh, you know, we had a lot of other protesters come out and sort of like really you know combat them and almost drown them out to the point where like you almost forgot they were there i think they left they're supposed to be be there for two hours they left early right yeah so it's like we also got that instant like news that like all right these guys came out but they were beaten back and beaten down you know not physically but like you know there were opponents and people standing up for what you know for what's right uh so it's like it's good and bad but just to go back to uh what you were talking about like you know you having read some of the jim crow stuff and like you know sort of reading and then picturing it's like so i feel like now because we get we you know everything's filmed right so it's like this instant like we see something happen and it's like shocking and tragic and it's like and it gets people motivated and i I think that's a good thing uh that we can like see when these atrocities are happening but on the other hand because so many people one of the things i think like when you know when we're talking about the civil rights movement of the you know 60s and 70s is that uh, because there weren't as many, you know, social media wasn't a thing. So it's like because there weren't so many voices that can pop up, right? You had these like really poignant speeches and, you know, singular yeah. voices that can come out and be very powerful, right? Like a Martin Luther King. Uh, and now because we have so many people that can just, you know, spit out everything that they want I feel like it's hard to get that singular voice you know what I'm saying that can just really have some powerful moving words and I'm not saying we can't have that but it's a little bit harder because there's so many people posting their thoughts and different things on like what's happening now yeah so yeah I think there's also there's also obviously a generational um, interpretation of of these things you know Um, 
as you were as you were speaking, I thought of the fact that, like you know, during the period post slavery, because people had been enslaved at some point, right. um, there were photographers that did go around photographing like these scars on people's backs right, yeah. who had experienced being lashed and whipped, right? right? And those images, um, you know, they're burned into my mind, and yeah. I think they should be burned into the minds of every, you know, American and citizen immigrant. If you're here on work visa, I think you should take a look at these photos and really take a moment to think about that. This is something that we that I mean, was normalized same, here. That was normalized here. It was the same with the Emmett Till photos, man. Absolutely, like when his absolutely. mother allowed him to have the open casket so yeah. that people, the world, could see it. Right, um, and also. There was something that was actually at the beginning of Black Klansmen um, that they alluded to, uh, or I don't know if it was the I forgot if it was the beginning or the end. But um, if you know the end, and if this is a spoiler, I'm sorry. But at the end, Harry Belafonte makes an appearance. Yeah. I'm not going to get into the detail about what he's describing, but it, it was either during that moment or in the beginning. There's mention of this thing with postcards, right? And the thing with the postcards was that this was actually something that they did during the when during after lynchings right? right what they would do is they would they would brutalize and murder someone and then they would commemorate it by taking a photo and sometimes they would share them as postcards right right and this was like a normalized practice in the south right now forgive me if i'm getting the details a little a little wrong here right. but i do recall having a conversation with a colleague of ours who actually has a book about this right, right. and like i said you got to take a step back to think about, you know, these feelings, emotions, and reactions because, you know, in this generation, it's like, you know, granted, like the 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 the, the wage gap is a bad thing that we need to obviously rectify. Right. But when it comes to drowning out voices, right, you know, there are people that are still feeling and still affected by you know the imagery and the normalization of this type of brutality that took right. place like you know less than less than 100 years ago right. in some ways you know so that that's like the food for thought that right. you know i mean and, and just to be clear i'm not saying you know we shouldn't like i think it's a good thing that people are allowed to like see something and say something and speak Absolutely. about how they Absolutely. feel i'm just thinking i'm just saying it's also just a little bit harder for that like singular yeah. voice to yeah. sort of stand out because yeah. we have so many people just like coming out and speaking about things and like i said it's not necessarily a bad thing but it just it, it makes it a little bit harder for that like singular voice right. to stand out right um, but yeah, let's uh, talk about something more lighthearted. <laughs> All right. Like, uh, Oscar categories that have been added. Oh boy. This may just lead us right back to <laughs> where we were going, but. I know. Uh, yeah. So, um, if you. <laughs> it was quite the transition, right? Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, so if you haven't heard uh, the Oscars recently decided they put out like a memo <laughs> and uh, decided to put a popular film category into the uh, the nominations and uh, it's been a very polarizing decision that they've made because right, right. people are, you know a lot of people are like what makes a popular film like is the is are the Oscars turning into MTV music awards or movie awards? Um, some people don't. I was talking to a friend recently that actually really thought thought it was a really good idea. Um, I personally am not a fan of this <laughs> new nomination, but I want to hear your thoughts on it, man. If this becomes a gateway for Michael Bay to win an Oscars, then the Academy fucked up. <laughs> We should all be happy if this is a gateway for my no. Uh, the fact that Bumblebee now has a shot. <laughs> as much as I hate those Transformers movies, Bumblebee looks like it's probably going to be the best of them, <laughs> sadly enough. Uh, yeah, let me know what you think. <laughs> You're not going to see that one? I mean, uh, maybe I'll watch it on like a, to be a, a on a on an airplane flight. <laughs> I haven't seen the last two because I, I was done with it. Um, but... Uh, I just think I think it they're using it as an excuse to um to 
basically nominate films that they don't necessarily feel are worthy of best picture, right? I'm, I don't, I'm, I'm making hand gestures to Jordan here. Uh, so it's like, you know, first of all, a lot of people have come out and be like, this is their way to nominate Black Panther, like if, if we're being honest. And I personally think Black Panther is one of the best films of the year, so why can't it just be up for best picture? And I feel like this Oscar is just an excuse to be like, well, hey, you know, the 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 uh, the most popular film nomination that they've now created is just a way for them to say, well, you know, we we nominated it, so it got a nomination, and it you know won an Oscar or it could win an Oscar, so now we don't have to nominate it for best picture, and that's where I see the problem with this award. Because one, what makes a popular film, right? That's that's a huge question. I mean, it's sort of a broad question, but also, film films are films, man. Like, if you make a Marvel movie that's great, why can't it be up for Best Picture? That that's all I'm saying. And it just for me, it just feels like a way out. And obviously, it's like also. A ratings grab they want more people to watch and if you put a if you nominate some right, films right. that have been you know seen <laughs> by most of people in America I, mean, I don't know what the problem is they let they let Mad Max Fury Road win like 20 Oscars I mean Mad Max Fury Road is an incredible film and one of the greatest right, films right, <laughs> right. and that's my point is that it's like yo if you're creating a new category to let for Black Panther it's like well you let movies like that <laughs> It, there's a stigma that comes with the comic book film. Well, that's like that. that's part of the problem. Exactly, and, you know, I, I agree, and I, 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 I mean, think like it's the, a huge problem because I, there's there's no reason that like I personally right thought and think that uh, Black Panther and Infinity War were two of the best films of the year. So why couldn't they be nominated? That that that's my biggest question to them. Is yeah, you don't need this award. Just nominate these films that are good and people also like. Yeah. Problem is, they sitting around here twiddling their thumbs saying, man, Phantom Thread was so deep and moving and I'm sure it was. I'm not saying it was a bad movie. <laughs> but <laughs> but let's be serious. Like, the average person, like, the, and that's the thing with the Oscars and we've talked about this where it's like, you know, you and I can both watch like really deep, moving, impassioned films that right. are like really capture the art of filmmaking. And then there's a, you know, there's also a side that's just like wants to watch Scarface all the time. Right. <laughs> you know? And that's exactly kind of the point about the Academy where it's like, yo, like you could nominate Phantom Thread, you can nominate Phantom Menace. <laughs> <laughs> did you say Phantom Menace? <laughs> Which I'm pretty, I think they, I know Phantom Menace did win an Oscar. Uh, pro- it was like for special Oscar. effects, yeah, I yeah, think. Yeah. Right? It definitely wasn't for Best Picture. Yeah. Uh, but, the, but my point being though is that <laughs> It's like you know, I think the the issue that I take I get with I have with it is that you have the power. Don't act like you don't have the power right. to do this. You let Suicide Squad win for like best makeup. Or <laughs> Jordan's whatever. been talking about the Suicide uh, Squad Oscar for years. No, I mean look. I mean, I mean, look. Like I think what two thousand eight, uh, the Dark Knight was nominated for several, right. several, but it didn't get a best picture. It didn't get a b- best picture nomination. Ridiculous. They they awarded uh, Heath Ledger an award like posthumously. Yeah for um his performance in it and i remember like sitting at dinner i was arguing with uh one of my cousins now (laughs) ex-boyfriend and i was just like i don't understand why this movie just isn't getting like best picture and he just kept saying the academy just doesn't like movies like that like i said even kept saying this to me and the only thing running through my mind while i was eating his his pasta was like (laughs) dude you better try a little bit hard if you're trying to be part of this fucking family <laughs> and now he's not and there he's anymore. not uh it, well you know and that's the problem right or look at dark knight we just we just did an episode about like the impact of that film right and even a film like that right christopher nolan right uh and, yeah. uh, uh you know beloved filmmaker especially like by the academy themselves right couldn't even get a comic book film that essentially changed the game in the landscape of you know at least that portion of cinema uh he couldn't even get his film nominated right. for best picture so like it, it, something has to change because like i said it, one they had expand so it was it was you know five nominations for a long time then they expanded it to 10 dropped it to eight like or seven or whatever they're doing if you expanded 
the number of best pictures, like they did it not that long ago, back to 10, like it used to be like when, when right, the Oscars right. first started. You have plenty of room there to nominate all of these films. What do you need? The most popular film, like I said, it's an MTV. You, soon there's going to be Best Kiss. Best Kiss is coming to the Oscars, man. I'm telling you. It's just, it, I, I don't know, man. I, I find it absurd. And then I just, like I said, man, if it's a great movie, it's a great movie. I don't care what genre it's in. I, 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 you know, Superman's in it, Batman's, I don't care. There's no, if it's a great movie, it's a great movie, man. I know this is just a this is just another uh, fascist liberal policy <laughs> aimed at some type of fake equity or equality that just quite frankly is not is not what the people wanted. <laughs> oh boy, <laughs> Jordan's about to go off. I know, right? Uh, I'll just back away from the mic. You you continue the rest of the show on your own. No, uh, in all seriousness. Um, <laughs> I just think it's a, it feels like a it feels like a phony nomination, yeah, no, and it feels it like a does. sad like attempt, like a grab at something. Like it's just it's it's too obvious, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And there are other awards that could be created that are kind of needed. Like I've been saying for years that like sort of a best fight choreography, something like that, oh, could yeah. be a nomination because uh, it's such you know an integral part of filmmaking. Oh, absolutely. And uh, you know these people don't get recognized with from the Academy. So an award like that, but obviously nobody wants to see, they're already about to hide a lot of the technical Oscars anyway. Yeah. Because also part of that memo is how they really want to trim the fat on the Oscars. So uh, it's just, um, you know, it's it's um, it's just a sad attempt to, to grab more ratings and, you know, pretend like they, they want to nominate these films. That being said, Phantom... Fred is an incredible film. <laughs> and, uh, and Phantom Menace is also an incredible film. <laughs> we just lost a lot of viewers. Uh, but no, I think there's a place... That's the Academy way of thinking. That's their, them messing with my mind. Uh, I'm just saying, I think there's a place to have, to nominate a Phantom Thread and a Black Panther. And, I, you know, I agree. And have them I, all I in there. Because they're all great films and they should all be nominated. Not, not that we have to nominate every film. This isn't Little League. But what I'm saying is, is you know, they can all be in the same category. No, I, I agree. I do agree. So, yeah, I mean, that's pretty much it yeah. for this episode. I think it's another one in the bag for us. Um, the Academy, if you're listening, please nominate <laughs> Black Klansman and Sorry to Bother You for Best motherfucking picture. <laughs> they should just have like a Samuel L. Jackson best motherfucking picture award. That that's the way you rectify it. Jordan's dropping f bombs left and right. right I'm just saying. Like, <laughs> I, I'm just saying that if you want to rectify it, you should have best picture and the and the Samuel L. Jackson best motherfucking picture <laughs> award. That's the other uh, the new you award know, you would yo, say. That that would, I, uh, yo I guarantee people would be like that's the real motherfucking. <laughs> uh, anyway, <laughs> that's another one, guys. Um, yeah. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. Shift is out. out. It's 8 a.m. Ha, 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 ha.